We're in um, the material in chapter uh, 9 of the book of, of, of Exodus. And um, I think we're ready to deal with uh, the second to last plague. <clears throat> Actually, I, I said 9, I meant 10. Excuse me, chapter 10. Okay, which, well, one of each. All right, there. They're here. And uh, again, the, the little sheet I gave you in Festivals of the Lord, just set that aside for now. Um, Lord willing, before the hour's up, we'll get to this. The other thing, again, I'm giving you a lot of material, but um, my Bible studies have one primary goal to combat the biblical illiteracy in the North American Evangelical Church. Uh, I'm kidding. That isn't the only reason. But it's, I, I just uh, want to give you as much depth material as I can, and you deal with it uh, however you want. But the, the plagues of, uh, of God that he's leveling against Egypt are so important for so many reasons, um, and, and what we're, we're almost finished with them. But the most, I think one of the most helpful charts is the one I have for you on page 7 of your note. So here is more things to you look at. But that the chart that really helps us to understand that God is not only, if I can use this word, punishing Egypt because the Pharaoh will not let God's people go, but he is also dismantling their entire worldview. He is showing the absolute inadequacy of the worldview which the ancient Egyptian empire had from the deification of Pharaoh to their view that the sun is a god, the god Ra or Amun-Ra by the time of Moses. And God is just showing all of that is inadequate. That is a worldview that leaves out the most important aspect of any worldview, the singular, transcendent, infinite, holy God, who has now revealed himself as the God of Israel of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so God is proving this to the people of Egypt, but he is also affirming this grand truth to his people Israel, and they are seeing it before their very eyes. And as you've heard me say, and I'm repeating it one more time because we'll be finished with the plagues today, the Lord will say again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, and it will come up a couple of times in the New Testament. The singular most important event in the history of these people is the exodus out of Egypt. Did I not bring you out of Egypt? God will say to them again and again and again. Did I not give you the law on Mount Sinai? Did I not protect you and keep you during the 40th year, 40 years of wandering? He just reviews their history. Why does he do that? Because your history shows that I am a faithful, loyal God. Will you please be faithful and loyal to me? In effect, that's what he's saying. So in plague number nine, which we started last week, but we did not finish, or uh, plague number eight, excuse me, uh, the locust, um, we talked about that. I hope you remember that. In those first couple of verses, one and two, God give two purposes for this plague that you may know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, 
but in the beginning of verse 2, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. It is a didactic purpose to teach, to teach truth. So the miracles that God is performing here now have an additional purpose. And God is revealing that purpose. For the Israelites, it's to teach their children truth. Can I expand that? If you go to the New Testament and you study the miracles of Jesus, Jesus never did a miracle to show off. Every miracle Jesus did was teaching a truth. And that, that is, that is the, one of the main points of the grand miracle segments of the Bible. God does these supernatural events to prove something about himself so that you will learn from that, not just you, but I mean all the people to whom it's being done, as well as people who are observing it, that you then will teach that. Our God is the most powerful God that anybody's worshiping because he's the only true God. How do I know he's the only true God? Look at what he does. And God will say, I just, I'm teaching the minor prophets this semester, and we're just finishing, I just finished the book of Amos yesterday, and God says to the, the northern tribes, uh, the ten tribes of Israel, that's to whom the uh, prophecy is addressed, go to your gods that you've been worshiping and ask them for this and this and this and this. Why does he say that to them? Because you go to the gods of Molech and Chemosh and Baal and Ashtaroth, and you ask them, are they going to deliver? No, they're wood. They're stone. They're meaningless. Why do you worship them? So this, what we're seeing here is a demonstration of God's awesome power. For Israel to learn something, and for that generation and to teach it again and again and again to their, to their children. So the rest of the, uh, the rest of which we, again, pretty much covered, I, I think I, I left off at verse 13. But Pharaoh is then confronted again by uh, Moses and Aaron. And then we see this attempt at a third compromise in verse 10. The Lord be with you. If I let you go along with your women and children, clearly you are bent for evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. And Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So here you see Pharaoh attempting to compromise a little more. Okay, I'll let you go, but only the men can go. Well, now, you leave the women and children uh, uh, back in Egypt, you know you know for sure they're going to come back. Yeah. And that's what he's trying to sell. Moses and Aaron, they're not going to buy that. That's not what God is asking. So then God sends the plague. In verses 12 and following, remember, I, I didn't go over all that, but we covered it at least a week. Plague number eight of the locusts. And so Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, verse 13, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. Now, you have a map in, in your packet, but let me just refresh your memory. You know, here, here is Egypt along the Nile Delta, and to the east is nothing but desert. It's what you and I today call the Sinai Peninsula and to the east, and then that leads down to the Arabian Peninsula. It's just nothing but desert. So the east wind is blowing across the desert all day and all night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. 
Now, that is a very typical thing to happen in the Middle East even today. Those east winds, the Scirocco they're called, will bring not only dust, but they will often bring insects. But what is happening here, God is accentuating this, because we see never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Remember, that had been the previous plague. Everything growing in the field and fruit of the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all of Egypt. For a quickly summoned, this is remarkable here, quick, quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Is that genuine? Does he really mean that? Is that a confession of his unrighteousness? Or is this expediency? Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away. Moses and left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind. Now it's, it's blowing from, from, the, from the west where it's getting some of those winds coming off the Mediterranean as well which caught the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere. Verse 20. So after having asked forgiveness and repenting of his sin, Pharaoh decided to let the people go. None of you were challenging. I didn't, I didn't read verse 20. I made it up. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. So... We must assume here, man, we must assume that his, that is Pharaoh's confession of sin, has to forget, he didn't mean that. If that was genuine, wouldn't God, I mean, God is a God who hears that and responds. But God knew that wasn't genuine, so God hardens his heart. We've read about that before, the theology behind that. So, I, I just ran out of time last week. We couldn't finish that. But there are two more left. And each one, again, if you look at the charts, as well as, as just thinking through what we talked about when we started this segment, and I looked with you at the theology of the, of the Egyptian worldview, the last two hit at the vital center, the heart of how Egypt looked at their world. The sun and Pharaoh's deity. Um, for the time being, right in where we're at, it, are the Egyptian gods kind of discredited? Maybe, maybe they gain fame later on again, but for now, aren't they kind of, do they still believe in them? <laughs> yeah, that is, a, that is a really good question, Woody. I mean, uh, first of all, um, as is typical, and this is very, very typical in the ancient world, and to an extent it's even true today, rarely did the pharaohs and the leaders of Egypt, because they kept chronicles. Chronicles were just lists of things that happened each week, each month, each year of their reign. Uh, rarely did they put anything negative down that would in any way besmirk their legacy in history. However, so that, I mean, I wouldn't expect to see this in any way written down in the chronicles of ancient Egypt, and they're not. However, we do know this, 
Shortly after Amenhotep II, who is the pharaoh of, of the Exodus, after Amenhotep died and the Jews, the Israelites, had left, and they're now in the wandering years and so on, and they're getting ready to go into the, to the conquest under Joshua, a new pharaoh comes into power. He will change his name from Amenhotep IV to Akhenaten, and he will try to foster the worship of one god, which is really interesting, and as many historians have speculated, and you really just can't prove it, but it, it poses a number of very interesting possibilities that the entire Egyptian worldview had been so discredited by the exodus and the plagues as we've been studying that are associated with it, that he said, this isn't working. Let me foster the worship of one God. He moved the capital from Memphis all the way down to, um, well, quite a bit down uh, the Nile River, uh, and built a whole new capital, a whole new worship center to this one God. It's called Armana, the cap A-R-M-A-R-N-A. And it, it becomes a remarkable period in Egyptian, ancient Egyptian history. And one more point to add, he starts getting letter after letter after letter from the kings of Canaan. Canaan at that time, which is the promised land, Canaan was a series of city-states. It wasn't a united kingdom at all. And these kings of these individual city-states are crying out for help. We are being ravaged by bandits who are destroying our cities and burning our cities. Who might they be? The Israelites of the conquest under Joshua. So it's just, it, it's an amazing, it's an amazing dovetailing of the events in Egypt and Canaan with what the Bible says in the Exodus and the conquest under Joshua. So I do believe, and it just, it's just absolutely impossible to prove this with 100% certainty, but I do believe the Exodus so shook up everything in Egypt that that explains why Akhenaten does what he does. Now, Akhenaten's rule doesn't last real long. He's over because he challenges everything. He challenges everything about the Egyptian worldview. And the priests rise in revolt against him, and he is eventually assassinated. Now, you probably know this, and you don't know that you know it, but his wife is the very famous Nefertiti. You've heard of Nefertiti. You know, she's that beautiful, you know, in a number of museum pieces celebrate her. And even more well-known is the name of his son. Akhenaten's son is Tutankhamun, King Tut. You've heard of King Tut, haven't you? Yeah. And so, I mean, all of that, it's just a really fascinating dynamic in ancient Egyptian history. Things that you don't see any time in Egyptian uh, history of ancient Egypt, you see right around the uh, Exodus period. So it seems to me that's more than just a coincidence. I think it's just evidence that it so shook up everything about the Ma'at. Remember, that's one of those key words, the Ma'at of Egypt, that um, they try something new and it doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't satisfy the, the priests that they overthrow him. And then they go back to their old ways. But in that period, you, you've got a period of about 60 years, all told, where they're going, and they go back to their old ways, the old worldview, and all that kind of stuff. That's a great question, Woody. And I went on a bunny trail that lasted way too long, so I'm sorry about that. All right, let's move into verse 21. Now, this is the plague of darkness. If you look on that chart on page uh, 7, um, you will see under 9, darkness, 
Ra, Amun-Ra, Atan, they are all the deities associated with the sun. And the most important one is that middle one, Amun-Ra. Because there's a lot of history behind that. But they believed that Ra and Amun-Ra rode a chariot and pulled the sun across the sky every day. And then went in under the earth and fought with the underworld gods and then came up on the other side and pulled it across. That's the cycle they were in. Amun-Ra is the most important god in the Egyptian pantheon because he was associated with the sun. And the sun is the most important uh, giver of life because it nurtures the soil, it, it, it nurtures the plants, and so on. So, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. Now, please note this. There is no warning here. Moses and Aaron do not go into Pharaoh. Moses and Aaron do not say, look, if you don't do it, God's going to send it. It's immediate. Right after the plague of locusts, immediately God says, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads out over Egypt. Darkness, that can be felt. Now, that's, it's, that's a metaphor. Darkness, that can be felt. But it's like a thick cloak. And I don't know, I, this hasn't happened to me very often in my life, but there are times in, um, like the summer, when a, a severe thunderstorm watch is coming and the sky just gets really dark with clouds. And it's almost, I mean, I, I, was it last summer or the summer before? I have a, um, a light uh, in my uh, back of, of my house right next to our garage that automatically goes on when it gets dark. And it was, that, it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon and the light goes on. <laughs> because there was such a diminished, and I remember saying to Peggy, you know, because I walked outside then, I said, this kind of feels what the darkness plague must have felt like. It was so thick and so ominous and so really frightening. Because at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you don't expect to see something like that. And then when storms were coming and all that kind of stuff. But I think that's all that the text is saying this. This was so ominous, you could almost feel it. And you have to remember, these... These are people that worship the sun. And so if Yahweh is taking away the sun, that is creating this darkness, that's, that is going to challenge everything you believe about your worldview. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. Three days of this. No one could see anyone else or move for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Review, <coughs> review question, where did they live? In Goshen. Up on the Nile Delta on the east side. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses, and Aaron said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds. The fourth and final compromise proposal. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord. Because, obviously, that's what a burnt offering is. It's a burnt offering an animal to God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof just to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we do not know if we are to use to worship the Lord. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He was not willing to let them go. 
Pharaoh said, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you'll die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So we're at that um, crucial turning point. Um, There's one more plague, but Pharaoh's hardening, it seems, is complete. Now God has to absolutely break him. And he will do that with the tenth and final plague. I want to remind you of that some of the stuff I put up on the board uh, a couple of weeks ago when we started this. Ma'at, M-A, apostrophe A-T, Ma'at is the key ethical standard that defines the Egyptian worldview, a world of order, a world of stability. You would agree that the first nine plagues upset that. But in addition, there was the premise that Pharaoh's chief responsibility was to maintain the order. And Pharaoh is a god. He is the incarnation of several of the Egyptian gods. God is about to attack him personally. So, now the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and in Egypt. After that, he will let you go. And when he does... He will drive you out completely. Now notice the change here. Notice the tone. Notice the direct, specific commands God's now giving. Tell the people. What people? The people of Egypt. The the Israelites, amen. The people of Israel. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Now, verse 3, I'm reading from the NIV, they put this in parenthesis. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Let's parse that for just a minute. Does that mean all of a sudden you have a bunch of Yahweh worshipers in Egypt? I don't think so. What? What's happening? They are responding to the plagues. Everything about their world has been challenged. And who's challenging it? The Lord, through his, his spokesman, Moses. So all of a sudden, the common, ordinary, typical Egyptian has a much different view of the Israelites than they did before. Yeah, a couple chapters before, they had gone to the Pharaoh and said, hey, you know, they're, they're really messing us up. That's right. Let's That's right. Yeah. Everything's changed now from the perspective of the Israelites and the perspective of the Egyptians. One other quick question. Why is God telling them, that is the Israelites, go and ask your Egyptian neighbors for gold and silver? Is that rhetorical, or are you looking for an answer? I'm looking for an answer. Okay. I, I think he's uh, <clears throat> preparing to pay them for all the time. Exactly. In slavery. Exactly. This will be compensation for their slavery. Is that and, retribution, like we owed the blacks for enslavement? Well, you could use the word retribution. Mm-hmm. You could I use thought the maybe word. it was for the future that they would need that. Well, it is, it is both, Woody. It is both. 
It is both for the retribution or compensation, whatever word you want to use, for the 430 years of slavery, but it also will be what they will need for the future. This will be used initially in a very negative way when Aaron makes the golden calf. Mm -hmm. But then later, you'll see some more positive things that come out of it, particularly when they build the tabernacle and all of the elements that are part of that. So this is, this is a very important. We've crossed the threshold now. There's no going back to the old ways for Egypt or for the Israelites. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Therefore, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there's ever been or ever will be. But among the Israelites, this is really interesting. Not a dog will bark at any person or animal. That's an unusual way to put it. What's it saying? They will not experience this at all. As a matter of fact, it'll be so quiet and so settled in Goshen, not even the dog will bark. Again, the contrast between what God is going to do throughout all of Egypt and what God will do in Egypt. In Goshen. Then you will know, here's that didactic purpose, that teaching purpose. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of the years will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Those last cluster verses are a summary of what has happened in all the previous plagues, but this one's going to be different. Now, before we look at the actual um, plague itself, and all that happened, something is instituted here. And it's, it's Passover, and it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So I want to talk about both of these, and I want to talk about both of these right away theologically. And then I want to talk about it in terms of how these two feasts affect the calendar of Egypt, uh, the calendar of Israel, which is the sheet I gave you a couple of minutes ago. Because what God, this is really interesting, see what God is doing here, as Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread are instituted, God is beginning to constitute them as a separate nation with separate celebrations and a separate calendar and a separate constitution, which they'll get down at Sinai. And then when all that's done, then they're ready to get their land. So this is the beginning of, of forming them as a nation. And you see that in verse 3 of chapter 12, tell the whole community of Israel. You see it down in verse 6. 
the members of the community of Israel. That's translating a kind of difficult Hebrew term. They are, this is the first time this has been used. It was not used in Genesis. It has been not used thus far in Exodus. Now they are a nation. And God is instituting a calendar that is sourced in, based upon, organized around their worship festival. And the beginning of their year is Passover. That's the beginning of their year. So if you look at the chart that I just gave you, the festivals of the Lord, that's why I'm doing this. This is, it's just, it's just a major linchpin in the history of Israel. Chapter 12 is a really, really important chapter. Because it, from God's perspective, from God's vantage point, you are now a nation. You are no longer slaves in a nation. You are a nation. And I am going to begin to structure everything that defines a nation. And the very first thing I want you to do is the beginning of your year is Passover. And so Passover is in the month of Nisan. You don't know what that is. By the way, Orthodox Jews still follow this calendar, but the typical Jew in Israel doesn't. But anyway... For us, that would be in March, April. The last half of March and the first half of April. That's where Nisan is. So it's a spring festival, but that's the beginning of the year. The Jewish calendar begins in Nisan, which for us is in the spring. By the way, you do know why we have the calendar we have, don't you? It comes from the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did that. And the... um, January, Jonas is named after God. But this is, can I tell you this story? This is really, this is really a great story. Um, July is named after Julius, Julius Caesar. And August is named after Augustus, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus. But as the calendar was being constructed, uh, Julius Caesar is the one who put the first calendar together. By the time Augustus is ruling, he saw something. July has more days than August. So he took a day from February and put it in August. I'm serious. I'm serious. That is exactly the reason. He took a day from February. Actually, I'm sorry. He took two days from February and put it in August so that his, his calendar, would his month would be, uh, be longer than, than Jewish Caesar's month, which is really... Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, October is named after Octavian, which was Augustus's name before he became Caesar Augustus. That's, I'm sorry, I made a mistake there. Uh, he took a day from February and put it in August, and a day from February and put it in October. So the, both of those months would be longer. That's just, I'm telling you, isn't that a piece of trivia? Everything else I'm teaching you, you'll forget. But what I just told you, that's what you'll remember. That's the one thing you'll remember from today's class. That's not the takeaway I want, but I don't know why I told you all that. But what is really important here from this perspective is Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread are the beginning of the calendar of this new nation. And their calendar is organized around festivals to the Lord. It's not organized around agricultural seasons, although they will be connected. 
And that leads me now to the theology behind this. And that's what I've written up here. There's a lot here. And we'll look at what happens then. Uh, and we'll probably be able to get it done or most of it done as we look at the actual text then. But there will be a whole series of these feasts that God will institute. Feast of Passover, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, and all that stuff. But these are the first two. Now, Passover, as you know, comes from just the word that when the angel of death comes through the community, if there's blood on the door, the blood of a lamb on the door, he will pass over that family. Hence, Passover. In terms of how Israel is to look at this, it is a feast to celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. And that's obvious. And it will be a feast that they will celebrate in the spring, and it involves a meal, and it involves a time of dedication. As you know, at least I think you know this, when Jesus uh, is giving his upper room discourse in John chapter 14 through 16, right before he goes to the cross, they're celebrating Passover. They're eating the Passover meal. Which means they're about to have the sacrifice of the lambs. Whoa. Now you are starting to make the connection, don't you? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Mm-hmm. And what the New Testament does, the New, I just wrote three references. There are many, many references, really, throughout the New Testament. Jesus is the Passover Lamb of God. Amen. And when Jesus marched into Jerusalem, and um, um, Palm Sunday, he marched from the Mount of Olives down the road, across the. Jesus didn't enter the East Gate. Jesus entered the Sheep Gate, which is on the northeastern corner of Temple Mount, where all the sheep, all the lambs for the Passover sacrifice center. Isn't that neat? I mean, there's the symbolism is powerful. But it is intended to help us make the connection that Passover is really a foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ is going to do, who is the Lamb of God who will die once for all the sin. Passover becomes the most important of the many, many, many feast days in Israel. Therefore, theologically, so this is what it celebrates. It applies to and points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. But there are two other theological points. And here's where you've got to really pay attention. It is both substitutionary and propitiatory. What does that mean? Substitutionary. The lamb dies and sheds its blood, which is put on the doorway as a substitute for that firstborn son. Why did God pass over the homes that had the lamb's blood on the door? Because that lamb had died in the place of that son. That's exactly what the New Testament is saying. Jesus dies in our place. It's the Passover lamb of God. Propitiatory, what does that mean? It satisfies the wrath of God. So God, as God poured out his wrath on Egypt, because of the Passover lamb whose blood covered the door so that it satisfied or so that it was a substitution 
for that firstborn. It also satisfied the anger and wrath of God. So God can pass over. That's exactly what this, this word propitiatory is used four times in the New Testament. Every time it is referring to what Jesus Christ accomplished. God, Jesus Christ satisfied by his death, burial, and resurrection, satisfied the wrath of God. That's why Paul was so audacious, audaciously said, we are, not the ob- we are no longer the objects of God's wrath. Because it's been satisfied. By whom? By Jesus. The Lamb of God, uh, sorry, the Lamb of Passover satisfied God's wrath momentarily. But that's why every year you have to do the Passover again. You have to do it over again. You have to do it over again. You have to do it over again. But the book of Hebrews says Jesus Christ did it once for all. One sacrifice. An eternal sacrifice. So I'm trying to, I hope I'm accomplishing this. I'm trying to get you to understand why as we're talking about Passover now, we're going to read about it in the text, we are at a major major turning point in the history of Israel. They are now constituted in God's eyes as a nation. He is now establishing a calendar and it starts with Passover. It is now instituting an object lesson ceremony where they'll always celebrate their deliverance from Egypt but it is deeply theological and it points to Jesus. So, it's clear then from your teaching today, if I understand it right, that God had an interest in making Israel a nation. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm asking, and I don't want to name names, but I'm asking because I was discussing with two clergy people today that very point, and it was being argued in the class that, challenging why is Israel so hung up on being a nation? <clears throat> this is the difference between Bible believing and Bible questioning. Yeah, it unfortunately is. I mean, Rob, I don't think you can, just being you know, objective and intellectually honest, you cannot read the Bible without concluding that God specifically created the nation of Israel for a very clear purpose. And they are God's chosen. It's not our purposes. It's his purpose. No, for his purposes. And... Huh? Absolutely. I mean, how can you read the Abrahamic material in the covenant and not reach that conclusion? But yeah, I mean that's uh, and I, I please don't tell me the names. I don't know anything about them. But it's the, yeah, please. But it's just that's one of the sad things about uh, the critic of the Bible. Uh, even those who wear pastors' robes, for some reason, they just get hung up on things that uh, get them off the main point of what's really going on in Scripture. This this Passover is so significant. In the, in the history of redemption and in the history of what's going on in the nation of Israel. I've said it, I think, three times. This, we are crossing an enormous threshold here in biblical history. And I'm trying to drive it home in multiple ways, and I hope I'm succeeding. Because as we read this now, which is what I want to do, I just want you to understand from God's perspective, he is saying things are never going to be the same from here on out. They're never going to be the same. You are no longer enslaved. You're no longer a part of Egypt. You are now a separate nation. 
And I am about to fulfill those unconditional covenant promises I made to Abraham. And it starts today. Tim. So, when, after, the, after they left Egypt and yes. they celebrated the Passover on an annual basis, part of it, of course, was to remember what God had done and the great deliverance he provided. But was it, when they sacrificed a lamb, was it an annual... Um, covering of sin <clears throat> again. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, once a year they would. That's right. They were their sins were covered. Yes, it, uh, that's a great question because it's not used right here, but it soon will be used as we even before we get out of Exodus. God is going to connect with the Passover festival another word, atonement. And atonement, all I'm doing is just, what does that Hebrew word, kobar, atonement, mean? Cover. God is covering their sin. The Day of Atonement, the Passover, and all that's associated with that is a national holiday festival. But Jim, when you as Joe Israel, I'm just making that up, you're Jim Israel, but as Jim Israel, every time you did a burnt offering, uh, you know, you offer to burn offering to the Lord. And maybe you also uh, offered a peace offering, which was followed by a meal. What are you doing? That is individual personal atonement for your sin. A very specific thing you did that you know displeased the Lord, and you're taking the burnt offering, you know, whatever. There's so many different varieties of things you could do. But that is, you're, you're, now, you're, you're now dealing with God, and God is therefore dealing with you on a very personal, individual level. And that all, all of this is a part of not only how the nation walked with God, day, uh, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Day of Atonement, all that stuff, and the individual offerings are the personal relationship. This is how you walked with God. Before the cross, this is how you walked with God. How did God take care of my sin? Through the sacrifices. How do I know I'm at peace with God? The peace offering. Peace is shalom, the shalom offering. There's nothing between you and God. And when you read that, it's incredible. To me, it's one of the most exciting things about ancient Israel. They would celebrate a meal together. Who's hosting the meal? God. I mean, it's a the, the symbolism of this did not go unnoticed by the faithful Jew, the faithful Israelite. They knew what God was doing. But you can also see why then God would go up, get so upset when they would say, well, can't we also worship Baal too? Let's, let's bring Baal into this. And God would say, no. Baal didn't do any of this for you. I did everything. By the way, if you think Baal's so great, pray to him. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Ask Baal to do all this stuff. Baal's silent. Why? Because he's just a piece of wood. I'm getting real animated here, but it's just God is trying to demonstrate to them, I did all this for you. And I want to remind you every day of every year what I've done for you. And there's a crowning annual festival, the Passover. You're not going to do this once. I want you to celebrate this every year. And you remember, you go through, you teach. Just like when the Lord Jesus, before he goes back to heaven, to the Father, he says, I want you to do something. And every time you do it, I want you to remember what I did for you. What's it called? The Lord's table. 
That's to be one of the most meaningful things you and I do. Very personal, because we are remembering all that Jesus did for us. Woody. I don't know how important this is, if it's a trivia or what, but from the time of the actual Passover, where, where they were passing over the Correct. stones, Correct. to the time of the Last Supper? Yes. How old? 1400 and 96 years. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yep. Because the year of what we're reading right now is 1446 B.C. So then I added 30 years onto that. And so it's very close to that. All right, I want to do one more thing before we leave uh, this and start into the text. Just a word about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a feast that celebrated their separation from Egypt. And you'll see that when we get to it. But leaven, uh, do you know what leaven is? Yeast? You know what that is. Okay. Mm-hmm. Leaven in the Old Testament economy of things is a symbol of sin. And so as they are celebrating, it begins with Passover, then there's a seven-day celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Excuse me, they're to clean out everything um, in their house, etc., of leaven. And we'll, we'll read about that. And then you, you, you are separating yourself from everything that was dirty and filthy and sinful about Egypt because you're leaving. And then that becomes a symbol because the Feast of Unleavened Bread is after Passover and the atonement for sin, you're, you've cleaned out everything that's sinful in your life. Now, I mean, it's symbolic. And that's why Paul will pick up on that in the book of First Corinthians, and he will say, now I'm going to paraphrase the point, we celebrate the Paschal Lamb, Passover, which points to the cross, which points to the satisfactory, substitutionary, propitiatory atonement of Jesus Christ for our sin, and then we begin to practice Unleavened bread, where we're constantly, now that's the difference between justification and sanctification, we're constantly now in the process of cleansing ourselves of sin, getting rid of our old habits, getting rid of our old patterns of sin. And you see, again, and there are many books, there are many books that are out there on the market that you can read, and they're enriching books, a little hard at times, but enriching books of how all of these feasts of ancient Israel point to Jesus and how they're all fulfilled in Jesus. It's an, it's an incredible study to do, honestly. And it just shows you the intentionality of God in terms of Israel, and everything about Israel and all the feasts and everything is pointing toward the Messiah. And it's just, it's one of the great unifying elements. I believe it's one of the most powerful apologetic arguments for the unity of Scripture there is. And it's just, it's, it's just remarkable how God, I mean, you know, I've studied this stuff for 30-some years. You just, you just stand in awe of how God really knows what he's doing. And despite the failures and stumbling and inadequacies of, of all of us, God keeps pressing on with his program. And that you and I are in his kingdom by putting faith in his son is one of the amazing things of his grace. Because there are many times, I'm sure you're all the same, many times, Lord, why in the world would you have included me in this? I mean, I don't deserve this. I, you know, what? 
and I'm just, you know, I just stand in awe of what God has done in my life. It isn't because I earned it, deserved it, merited it. It's God's grace. And that's what Israel is supposed to conclude. We didn't earn this merit, but we are the privileged people of God that he's using to proclaim his truth to everybody. And they didn't always see it that way. All right, you ready now to get back to the Bible? Verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of the year. Tell the whole community of Israel. Now, again, I'm reading from the New International here. It may be translated a little bit differently, but there's two things I want you to notice. Verse 2, God is instituting the calendar of this new nation. Number two, he calls on the whole community of Israel. The first time this is used up to this point in the Bible. They are now a nation. They don't feel that way. We're still in Egypt. <laughs> Only for a few more days. And God is saying to them, and that's how you and I can understand it. I think it would hit them. This is a major threshold day in our lives. It will never be the same <coughs> after this. Tell the whole community that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family and one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people that are there. You are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. That's very important. What does that really mean about defect? You know, no an broken leg, oh, okay. um, no um, deformed ear, oh, okay. nothing. I mean, there there is nothing of defect in that animal. Okay. Year no old. Sin, no sin yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, take them from sheep or goat. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel, there again, that very important nation name must slaughter them at twilight. That would be between 3 and 5 p.m. in the afternoon at this time of the year. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with herbs and bread made without yeast. Now, I want you to notice there are three things associated with this. Number one, you shed the blood of the lamb and you put it on the sides and tops of the door frames. Number two, you eat the meat roasted over the fire. Number three, you eat it with herbs and bread made without yeast. Yeast, leaven, is a symbol of sin. Okay, yeah, Joel. Bitter herbs, yes, yes, that it is. Did I skip bitter? Yeah, it it, it is. If I skipped it, I did, did that unintentionally. Thank you. It is with bitter herbs. Okay, now look at verse nine. Notice the the, the very the specificity here. I do you know what I mean by specificity. God's being very specific here. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, like you do when you make a hot dog. That was supposed to be a joke. Nobody got it. <laughs> Don't boil it. But roast it over the fire with the head, the legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, what do you do with it? You burn it. This Verse 11. 
This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. It's for the Lord. And that, that, that I, I hope you get the object lesson of this, because you've got to be ready to go. We're about to leave. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt. I will strike down, strike down every firstborn of people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you in the houses that you are, where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destruction, plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. By the way, that Hebrew word, pa, uh, Passover, is Passah, P-A-S-A-H. Can you see where Passover comes from? P-A-S-A-H. And that is why Jesus in the Greek is called the Paschal Lamb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he's called the Paschal Lamb. He's taking the Hebrew Passah, bringing it into Greek, which is Paschal, and adding lamb. Point Jesus is the Passover Lamb of God. See the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament here? It's really quite significant. Now, that's God's instructions about Passover. It marks the beginning of your new year. It is in the spring, and it is to be a festival dedicated to me because it celebrates my deliverance of each from of you from Egypt, it is substitutionary because that blood shed, that lamb's blood shed, means I will not strike your firstborn. Something else had died in his place, and it satisfies my wrath. And that is exactly how the New Testament talks about Jesus' sacrifice. It's substitutionary, and it's propitiatory. I just think that's kind of exciting. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class. Okay, now let me do one more thing if we can. Verse 2, verse two, uh, verse 14 is the second feast. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You should celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast, leaven. In the Old Testament, yeast, leaven, is a symbol for sin. On the first day, remove the yeast in your houses. For whoever eats anything with the yeast in it from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a second a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do not work on any of these days except to prepare the food for anyone to eat. That's all you may do. This is called, verse 17, the festival of unleavened bread. Now you get the sequence. Passover followed by a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And in that little outline there, um, you, you see it. The uh, Passover is on the 14th day of Nisan. Unleavened bread is from the 15th through the 21st day of Nisan. That's the Hebrew month. That's just the name of the Hebrew month. Because it is on this very day that I brought you divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whoever foreigner, native-born, who eats anything with yeast must be cut off. 
eat nothing made with yeast. That's pretty categorical. That's pretty categorical. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. And so you see two things there, Passover and the eat. Because remember how, how the Jews look at a day. A day begins at sundown of the previous day and goes till sundown of the next day. So sundown of that day is actually being the 15th day. I hope you're with me in what I just said. So it's really, um, it's just a, it's, 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 it's an extremely important section we've just studied together. Because God is instituting, I think it would be right to say, the two most important feasts. Because of the institution of the calendar, as well as they, what they celebrate in relationship to Egypt, plus what they celebrate in terms of God's redemptive work for them. All right. Now, um, there's so much I'd like to do. Can I take two more minutes? As we close this out, as we're finishing all these plagues and everything, just think, think of what Egypt would have been like. Right before the Israelites are ready to leave, what has been demonstrated to them? Their gods are impotent, right? Their entire worldview, their gods are impotent. It's been dark for three days. Pharaoh's sons and all our firstborns are dead. Plus all the other things happen. Number two, the economy of Egypt would have absolutely been devastated. Absolutely devastated. This is an agricultural economy. God has just destroyed it. Number three, just think of the fear and terror among the people of Egypt. Everything about, remember, Ma'at was their core ethic. Ma'at does not characterize Egypt at the end of these plagues. Absolute chaos characterizes Egypt. It must have forced them to think seriously about the Israelite God, who Yahweh is, who the Israelites are. We do know, now there aren't many, but we do know that some Egyptians go with the Israelites and are incorporated into the kingdom. Talk about that a little later. Let me read. This is from a kind of an important book that someone wrote that you may know. On page 25. Plagues 1 and 2 focused on the Nile and its centrality to Egypt's fertility and blessing from the gods. Plagues 3 through 8 upset the entire perception of order, harmony, and stability so central to Ma'at. Chaos triumphed over order. Plague 9, darkness directly challenged Amun-Ra, the chief deity of the Egyptian pantheon. Finally, Plague 10 challenged the deity of Pharaoh and his role as the guardian of Ma'at. Before Almighty God, Pharaoh was declared impotent and void of any power. He was not a god, and he could not preserve the order and balance of the Egyptian world. God has just dismantled everything the Egyptians believed. And in doing so, he forced them to let his people go. So come to class next week, and we'll see what happens next. It'll be really important that you bring this. Do not lose this. If you lose this, you owe $1,000 to the emergency fund of Steadfast Bible Fellowship Church, where I'm going to stay. All right? That's, I told the pastor staff I'm going to introduce a new fundraising campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm making that up. I'm just kidding. Let me pray. Yeah, uh, no, can I, let me pray. 
Father, uh, we've had a good hour. I've, I've covered a lot of material. I hope everything I have shared and said as we've rushed through all of this was meaningful. And Lord, if anything I said was not of your spirit, would you dismiss it from our minds, but help us to focus on the grand truths that we've seen. We are at one of the most important parts of the Old Testament, where you institute a new calendar for this new nation of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which will mark them now as the unique people of God. You are about to deliver them from bondage, just as Jesus Christ, the Paschal Lamb of God, will deliver us from bondage to sin. And you will forever cleanse us from that. So we then, as we move into the process of sanctification, are cleaning up our lives by your power, through your strength, and to your glory. Thank you for these men. Give them special blessing as they uh, seek to study the Word of God in depth. Be with them in their responsibilities and all the duties you have for them to do. And in all they do, enable them to represent you well in Christ's name. See you next week.